Hi, everybody. So I'm really, really excited about this. We are here to do our first episode of a new series that uh, Christine and I are going to do called Chicks on Flicks. And, uh, and we're, I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that is, uh, but it's going to be really fun. And uh, Christine, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Christine Tyler, and I have a YouTube channel called See Tyler Vision, where I just mostly talk about like traveling with my family and some day-to-day -day stuff. Um, and I'm always intending to do more in books than movies. And I say this like every time we do a video together and I never end up doing it, but that's who I am. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, we've done a number of uh, podcasts together over, uh, over the, um, I don't know, last year or so or two years mm -hmm. i don't know when we did our first one uh and uh so we've been trying to think of something kind of fun to do and uh, i came across this book by roger ebert uh the famed uh critic uh and it's called 33 movies to restore your faith in humanity and i thought it would be fun uh you know it's kind of divisive times that we live in <laughs> Uh, that it would be fun to watch these 33 movies and talk about them. And most of them I had not seen before. There's one on this list that uh, we've already talked about, you and I, so we're going to skip that. That's Lawrence of Arabia, because we've already done it. Uh, but the rest we should be able to do. There's, uh, there's a few that are rated R that we kind of have to look into a little bit more. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see, but we're going to do our best to do all 33 of these films and, uh, we're going to talk about them and hopefully it'll be uplifting and fun and new experience for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what we thought we'd do today to start off this series is we would watch the, uh, documentary about Roger Ebert. Uh, called Life Itself, and uh, we would kind of talk about that and talk about him and, and as sort of the the introduction to this list that he created. And uh, so this was really exciting. I loved this. This was my top 10 films of 2014. I loved this movie, uh, but I think partly it's because I love Roger and We'll talk more about that, but I, I, I've always loved Roger Ebert since I was a little girl. I watched pretty much every week I would watch his show, and, uh, and so I, I'm, I, I love the movie, uh, and I love learning more about him and his crazy, interesting life. So mm. what did you think about uh, the movie as your overall response? I loved it. <laughs> Two thumbs up. <laughs> um, I mean, overall, I think it was one of my favorite biopics. I think it's right up there with some of my favorites. Um, going into it, so I'm coming from the opposite angle, um, where I don't know anything about him. I never watched his show. I didn't know Siskel's first name. I mm. kind of only knew his first name, maybe. Um, and even when we decided that we were going to do this series, I had to Google whether or not Roger Ebert was still alive because I didn't know. So zero, like I knew nothing about him at all. Watching this movie, I was learning everything for the first time. Hearing oh, that's everything cool. for the first time. Yeah, I, I didn't even know he had cancer. <laughs> um, I had no idea what his relationship was like uh, with Gene Siskel. 
Um, and so it was really fascinating to me. Um, and actually funny enough, so, um, you know, it was rated R. And so I just kind of had like my, you know, eyes out for any content. So if anybody's watching this and they are concerned about content, um, there were a couple times when it would show like clips of some old movies that he had reviewed. And I would usually, if it seemed like it was taking a dark turn, I would just kind of like skip a few seconds and it was already over. So I got to watch this whole thing. There was, there was nothing um, in it that I found offensive at all. As a matter of fact, my five-year-old, my two-year-old were really interested in this movie and they sat down and wanted to watch it with me. Um, And my son was asking questions and things like that, you know, about, uh, Roger's condition and what had happened to him, but he um, was really fascinated by it, and he actually was really fascinated when Roger got married. My son was just yeah. really interested in that, and he was like, "Wow, they look like a great family. They have so many kids. Look how happy they are." <laughs> so yeah. I just loved it. That's really interesting because uh, you know that we come from this different perspective, but we both uh, loved it. I, I think that it's interesting about Roger is that for me, I, uh, I probably, if I ever met him would have almost nothing in common with him except for a mutual love of film. And yet I feel like I would love talking to him. I feel like I would be so interested and, and because we're very different politically, we're very different, uh, religiously, we're very different, we have very different backgrounds, but I feel like he, was somebody who understood people and was interested in people. And I think that as long as you have that, <laughs> I think that you can get along with almost anybody. And, and, and I, I really love Roger for lots of reasons, but one of the things is he not only inspired me to, you know, love movies, but he inspired me to, to actually literally see so many movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like Hoop Dreams was something that I would never have seen. I would never even have heard of it if it wasn't for Roger and, and Gene. And, uh, and, and there were so many movies like that, that because of his blog, because of his show, because of whatever it was that I said, oh, I've got to see that. And a lot of times it's interesting because I didn't see R-rated movies for a long time. A lot of the times the movies that he was talking about, I was never going to see but I was still so interested to hear mm-hmm. what he had to say about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what, what made him really special. And so I feel, I feel grateful. I feel grateful to him. And so I really love, like I said, I love this film and it's, it's not just a, a it's not like it's, it's, it's not a groundbreaking documentary as far as the style mm-hmm. or the, you know, other things, but uh, it's, it's not like it's a total fluff piece either. I don't feel like I'm right. getting some kind of like propaganda piece or something like that. Like some documentaries right. you feel, uh, and it there, you know, there, it felt, it felt real. It felt honest. Uh, and, uh, I appreciate that about it. Yeah. I, I almost felt like there was a little bit of like the Mark Zuckerberg effect going on, um, with how they were characterizing him, you know, saying things like he was a nice guy, but he wasn't that nice, you know, that like, this wasn't a person who went about life with like the priority of being kind or preserving the peace or hearing other people's opinions. This was just somebody who was really, really good at what they did Mm -hmm. and they were brilliant and they wanted people to know it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And to me, that's just fascinating. You know, 
I yeah. have, I, I feel like most people really aren't good or bad. They're just interesting or uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I really value it. being interested in people, you know, and yeah. people who have uh, so much variety in their own lives, you know. Yeah. And I, I yeah. And I, I love, it starts out, this is one of my favorite quotes, but it starts out the documentary with this quote where he says, we are all born with a certain package. We are who we are, where we, where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What, do you have any thoughts about that? I just agree. <laughs> um, absolutely. I think that, you know, and, and I would include books in that list, yeah. but I think movies do it in a different way. Um, I think movies hold you by the hand a little bit more because it's giving you the image and it's, you know, giving you a fuller version of the story it's telling. Whereas with a book, there's more leeway for how you interpret things in your own mind. I think that also it's a good argument for why, um, people telling stories from their own personal experience is also something that should be prioritized. Um, like, I heard someone say on Twitter once, and I don't know who it was, but they said that um, representation will never trump personal experience. Meaning like if you're telling, you know, a story about a marginalized society or minority or something like that, like I think it's okay for people, you know, writing out of their lane to do their research. But I think it's we want to be celebrating, we want to be prioritizing people telling their own stories. Because if this is an empathy machine, then we want to be hearing from authentic voices. So that's just kind of something that it makes me think of, mm -hmm. um, where it may not necessarily be bad to have people telling other people's stories or, you know, sharing experiences and things like that. I think that's good, but it's almost like a, it generates a lesser empathy because you're still having to go through their filter to get to someone else's story. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, that it's impossible for any human being to experience everything and whether it is, uh, that's one of the great things about art and literature, as you say, is that, uh, it allows us to experience a little bit. Obviously it's not the same as going through it yourself, but it, it allows us to experience a little bit more than we would in our own, uh, things. Well, even if it's a fantasy story, we can we mm -hmm. can experience an emotion. We can experience a victory. We can experience a uh, I don't know a sacrifice in a way that can help us in our lives to empathize more with other people and uh, to feel more bonded with other people. And I can think of many times when film has done that for me. Even just recently with the Oscar-winning film Moonlight. Now, I am never, probably in my life, if I'm honest, am ever going to meet a gay black kid that grew up in the inner city. I'm probably just not going to meet anybody like that. And, but I can watch Moonlight and I can walk in his shoes and I can feel his experiences and I can have more empathy for what he's going through.
And I, I think that's a powerful, important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I had a conversation with my younger brother a couple months ago. Um, we were talking about books we read and he used to be really big on science fiction and fantasy. And lately he's kind of edged away from it. And he mentioned to me, he said, I like reading nonfiction or self-help books because I want the books that I read to be useful. I want them to make me a better person. And it's like, I get that out of fantasy. Like that's exactly what a lot of other people are doing. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like I get more out of these stories where I can empathize and relate with a character than just being told what to do with mm -hmm. a self-help book, you know, right. which may or may not actually be internalized because I feel like books and movies, you're actively doing it, already participating in it. You're already um, practicing or exercising that empathy just by consuming it. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a self-help book, it's, it's theoretical, mm -hmm. right? Like it's all just the idea of what you should do rather than Mm -hmm. you experiencing it for yourself well and also i mean there are some great uh self-help nonfiction that do feel like a a, a narrative in a way uh -huh. to draw you in that can happen but uh it, you know it's just it's one thing to uh, just as an example i'm not a big fan of the al gore an inconvenient truth movie i know i won an oscar whatever because it was just like al gore sitting in front of a PowerPoint, click, 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 click. <laughs> and, but if I saw a movie about climate change with a narrative and about like Wally -E or something like that, I don't know, just something about those themes, mm -hmm. then I'm invested in the character and it makes me think about those issues more yeah. than I would, uh, even Avatar or something like that, you know, just something that has some of those themes that would make me think about it more than a more of a nonfiction approach. Yeah. Um, for the most, you know, for the most part. And uh, I think that it also, I mean, it can just help us to feel a little bit what other people, like just as an example uh, that was powerful for me in my life is uh, I'd always heard sort of people talk about, oh, those women on welfare leeching off the system or whatever. You hear these people talk about this in this way. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember when I watched Hoop Dreams and the first time and one of the because it's not about basketball hoop dreams it's just a that's the tool to get us into the story and uh and the one of the boys his mother just goes through just unending uh trials and when she finally she graduates with her nursing certification or, or degree it is one of the most triumphant moments and <laughs> this is a woman that again, this came out when I was in high school. So mm -hmm. this is, uh, it, this is a woman that I would have judged, I think at that time in my life as being somebody who was, you know, one of these people on welfare or whatever. And, uh, and, and then I saw this movie and I was just like, Oh my gosh, wow, this is so amazing. And, and so I think that there's real power there in just sort of walking, obviously that's a documentary. So it's even more kind mm -hmm. of walking in their shoes, but uh, the, that there is real power there in, in uh, not only, I think there's power in not only understanding others and understanding emotion, but, but feeling kind of validated in your own feelings and emotions. Like if I watch uh, a lot of the Pixar movies, <laughs> uh, when I watch Up, the reason why I love it so much is because it's about forgive, forgiving yourself 
and uh, and not living with regret about your life and and not letting regret consume you and that's an emotion i can really relate to and so watching the movie it really moves me uh because it makes me think of some of those things that i've felt and i've experienced and so i i just love love this quote i think it is beautiful yeah <laughs> actually it reminds me of another quote do you mind if i share it yeah please that i just um grabbed online by joseph campbell hmm. and this is kind of like what I consider his thesis statement on his work, breaking down the hero's journey, mm -hmm. um, the monomyth as he called it. And he said, we have, and forgive me if I get emotional because this is literally one of my favorite quotes of all time, that he says, we have not even to risk the adventure alone for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path and where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a God. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outwards, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. And I feel like this is another way of saying the same thing, that mm. this empathy machine, right? These stories are where we find connection with other people. Right. Yeah. That, that's and, and I think... You know, my parents never watch movies at all, and uh, and it's what yeah. I think that they sincerely miss out on on connecting with. Uh, you certainly don't have to watch as many as me. I get that, but uh, but I think you miss out on this. I think storytelling is powerful, and I think if you don't watch any movies, I think you really miss out on the storytelling device of our era, of our age, and that connection, like you're saying the connection with the hero, the connection with the, the, the protagonists of our time, you know, that kind of a thing the the um, there's so many different uh, things, but I think you really miss out on that shared communal experience, which I think is a little bit different than books is that with a, with a movie, you have a chance to not only have this, uh, this uh, experience with uh, the machine that generates empathy, but you literally can share that experience with a whole crowd of people, which I think is, is powerful too. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that it can be done quickly. Yeah. Um, agreed. You know, cause with books, I, I think that there's, there's so much there. Um, but it does, it takes quite a bit, I think, to convince somebody to read a book. Um, especially if it's like a series of books and each book in that series is four or 500 pages long, which is often the case, you know, especially with fantasy. Um, whereas with a movie, you know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to convince people to watch it. So the shareability I think is uh, yeah. far superior with movies. I mean, and not to get like political or anything, but like when, when I first heard of this idea of the all women, uh, Wonder Woman screenings, I was so happy i love that idea so much and i just thought oh that would be so amazing to have this like shared communal experience with all with women you know that would be so great especially now i've seen the movie that would be amazing and then the, it really bummed me out that people <laughs> turned it into this like feminist revenge thing I, I but that's for another hour but just that idea of like sharing this experience and, and sort of all sort of cheering and all sort of, even if you don't, you don't really talk to each other, just something powerful there, I think. Yeah. Peter Ebert was born in, in 1942, June 18th, 1942. And the movie, the documentary starts out with his 
uh, early life. It does flip back and forth a little bit uh, as you see him being interviewed in the hospital, some other things, uh, but uh, he, I really like this quote that he gives. He says, he says, I was born inside the movie of my life. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me, which I really like. That's a great quote. And uh, one of the cool things that, uh, that I liked about this early section is just, uh, it was very nostalgic about uh, something that we have definitely lost, and that is print uh, media, print newspapers. Mm -hmm. And it, he worked full time for the local newspaper by the time he was 15. And th this whole idea of sort of local news and local uh, a local newspaper, you know, that, that, that was, that's sort of a dream of, of, ch of children today. No, not really. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that. Was that interesting to you at all? It was. Um, I think it kind of gave way to the stronger story that came later in his life. Yeah. But, um, do you feel like we've lost something that that's a, a, a sort of a sad thing that we, you know, now we have blogging and social media and stuff like that, but, but do you feel like we've lost something with the loss of sort of local print media? I feel like we did lose something, but we've gained more. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, but I definitely, I related to though, when he, he got the stamp that said by Roger Ebert he was like sticking it on everything. I really related to that because mm -hmm. I've been a storyteller since I was a little kid. Um, and so that was so like what I would do. I mean, I would bind my own magazines and I would write my own little news stories and things. Like one time my guinea pig bit my finger. I did a whole news story on it where I like drew the wound and drew the guinea pig and I like presented it to my family members, you know, and I was like, look what happened today. <laughs> my so. sister and I would do the same thing and we would create these little newspapers. I still have them in storage, but we would even do our own uh, political cartoons, our own comics. Uh, th there's one that's so great where I give an update on the democratic convention uh, and I'm like, Bill Clinton's doing very blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> I feel like, and that was something we did on our, our free time mm -hmm. our, our just for fun and to entertain ourselves. And I feel like that's something that has been kind of lost. I mean, you're a mother, she know more than me, but the idea of kids, like, I, I just don't think that the kids are going to do that kind of thing now. And, uh, and the, the idea of sort of creating your own kind of entertainment in that way and, and telling your own stories and kind of chronicling your life, a, a lot of that stuff, has been uh, has been kind of kind of lost, and I guess I felt a little bit nostalgic for that. I mean, we like you said, we replaced it, and maybe we have replaced it with better things. But I I made me think back on those those little newspapers we would do. Uh, I I would even do movie reviews uh, in in these little uh -huh. little papers. I don't know. So that oh was a lot gosh. of fun. Yeah, you're triggering so many <laughs> memories for me right now. Um, I wouldn't say better. I mean, I wouldn't say it's better now, but that we have more and it's just different. I mean, cause the thing is, is when we were making these a lot of the times, yes, it was for fun, but there were also a lot of delusions of grandeur accompanying them, you know, where it was like, <laughs> we're going to be, you know, world-class journalists someday. And this is us practicing. <laughs> and the thing is, is I see that a lot with kids doing social media, you know, where they're yeah. like, we're going to create this 
you know, awesome new account. It's not so much blogs with kids, but whatever it is they're using, you know, where they're like, and then we're going to be famous. We're going to be rich for no good reason. And I don't think that that's unique to like this new generation. I mean, I think right. that was, uh, you know, prevalent when I was a kid too. It was like, yeah, we're going to be rich and famous. We're going to do this thing. And now they actually have the opportunity to put it online. Eh, I think there's some pros and cons to that, yeah. you know, but, um, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. So I don't know if it's killed that spirit of, um, chronicling and, and creativity, but I think it's definitely changed the landscape. Changed for sure. Okay. Yeah. I also really liked, you said, I can write. I just always have. On the other hand, I flunked French five times and it kind of made me, this is something I've thought about a lot of times that, you know, that this idea, and I do think obviously there's value in education, but, uh, at a certain point, uh, do we kind of waste time educating people and stuff they just will never be good at? You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just not a, a math person. And I certainly agree that a certain degree of algebra and stuff is, is really important. And I, I, I'm glad that I learned that stuff. Uh, but it would have been a waste of time for me to have taken trigonometry or for me to have taken calculus or for me to, you know what I mean? Uh, even if that, those things are very useful for many other people. And I don't know, I just thought that was really interesting that, you know, sometimes I think maybe we should sort of focus in on more what people, what are their natural gifts and what are they, uh, mm -hmm. what are they, and, and let them, uh, let them hone in on those things from like, he was, he was working full time in a newspaper at 15. And mm -hmm. we think that the teenagers, we think that uh, children are so incapable of doing things when in reality, if oftentimes in my experience, if you give them the chance to do it, then they do a really good job at it mm -hmm. or they surprise you at the very least. We get onto his college newspaper and he was kind of a, a big star in this college newspaper. Uh -huh. <laughs> Urbana, Illinois. Uh, I think it's what it was called, uh, the school. And uh, he was very bold. And they talk about a time when uh, he was willing to report on a church bombing. And also when he insisted that the, uh, that the press on the, uh, uh, on the uh, JFK assassination not uh, get redone because they had had a ad for a um that had a a pistol or whatever on it that was pointing towards the the, the column about the present he was like no we're not going to write that. we're not going to print that we're not going to distribute those mm -hmm. and uh, that everybody thought he was crazy and and how you know how could they how could he do that and uh, but he he stopped the stopped the presses <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh so i don't know i thought all of that was uh was really interesting to yeah, hear, you know, so, um, yeah, and and yeah, I should say since we we're talking about like Roger was the was the one to embrace new media more than almost anybody else. So he would like I I think he was probably nostalgic for print media, but he was also uh, he appreciated the new media also. So he's a, he's a really good example in that way of uh, of kind of uh, how to evolve, I guess. I liked another quote. I think one of his friends, Roger was, was not just the chief star of the movie. That was his life. He was also the director mm -hmm. and he brought in the cast and the scenario and he orchestrated it. 
Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, okay. And uh, what was interesting too, to me is that he basically got the job as critic kind of by chance, right? He'd been working sports, I think he said, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was, and they had been doing, uh, they had been doing, uh, the reviews by matinee, matinee, Mm -hmm. and it, which was basically just a pseudonym for anybody who uh -huh. could review it and so then he got the uh he got the job which i it's just so interesting how life is like this combination of talent and luck yeah <laughs> uh and uh so think about the section about his drinking alcohol uh his sort of his spending time with the worst kind of women uh and I don't know, what did you, did you think? And he ended up going to AA. What do you think about any of that? I mean, I think that if I got to sit down and ever have a conversation with him, he, I would suspect he would agree with me about the statement that there's not a whole lot of things that are good and not a whole lot of things that are bad. There's really just things that are interesting because I feel like that kind of personality gets drawn toward a lot of those self-destructive behaviors just because of the way that they grab your attention mm -hmm. um, and because of the way that they gen generate excitement in your life. And sometimes, I, I mean, and it's not really the wise in your life. And sometimes, I, I mean, and it's not really the wisest way to go. I think that it creates a lot of, you know, pain. And I think that, you know, he learned that, which is why mm -hmm. he quit drinking. I can certainly relate to that kind of tendency where when you do view your own life as your story, um, it ten you, you tend to make it more exciting. You, you do take more chances, yeah. you know? So a lot of value judgments on those things. And I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but I feel like that attitude there is reflected in his attitude before he dies, where he was like, I'm okay with this. I had a great first act, a great second act. I'm in the third act. Isn't it interesting? Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to die because all stories end. And so it's kind of this very um, objective way of looking at your own life, you know, the good and the bad and just saying like, wow, wasn't that a wild ride? I, I can picture just the, it seemed like to me that it was almost more the social nature of it that was the big draw. And I could definitely picture myself being drawn to that kind of a thing. Cause I am a very social person. And, uh, and so I, I don't know, I, I felt like the, the, that it was pretty understandable given how many people he got to know how many, you know, it's like, that's where your friends end up being. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It was very interesting and very impressive that he was able to, just he was able to stop like that and go to AA and is really remarkable. So uh, the he stayed sober his whole life, and uh, and then we do get a at this point we do get an interview with him uh, being sick, misspeaking, and he says not so much. I lived in a world of words long before I was aware of it. The new reality took shape slowly. My blog became my voice and let loose a flood of memories, they came pouring forth. I thought that was really beautiful that mm -hmm. he was living in a world of words. Because it is like the height of irony that the man that is won the Pulitzer Prize that was on this show, that he is somebody who is was very verbose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there's, an there's an interview with him and Gene Siskel 
uh, on the Tonight Show where Shawnee Carson just like leans back and is like, because they're just talking, they're like going at it, you know, like talking, talking, and he's like, well, I don't need to do this interview anymore. And, uh, and so it is very ironic that he would be the one who would lose his ability to talk. Yeah. You know, and so mm -hmm. it goes in a little bit about his writing beyond the Valley of the dolls. Uh, this was his, uh, his movie that his only screenplay that he did. Uh, and it's a, uh, I obviously I've never seen it, but, and they, they went a little bit about that. Uh, and then, uh, they also talk about his, uh, appearances at the conference of world affairs, which I thought was interesting, uh, that he was able to, uh, bring in kind of movies into something like that, uh, mm -hmm. that, just shows how the he this the same man who writes beyond the valley of the dolls is like speaking at this conference on world affairs and and giving a five-hour lecture on the i mean oh my gosh i would have just died to be at one of those screenings where you, literally like shot by shot he called a cinema interruptus and and the only thing i've seen close to it is he has a uh, a uh, audio commentary of citizen kane oh it's so great it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's fabulous. And so uh, it just would be so, so interesting. You would learn so much. And uh, he just covered the gamut kind of, of, he wasn't a, he wasn't a snob. He, he's somebody who gave a thumbs up to Home Alone 3. And he's somebody who, you know, loves, uh, French art house cinema, like have new wave, new wave film. So he really was kind of the whole gamut there, uh, which I appreciate. And uh, it talks a little bit about his wife uh, that you know, she says, she saved me from the fate of living my life alone, which is where I seem to be heading. And I think she's a pretty remarkable woman. Yeah. Yeah. I was impressed. <laughs> yeah. It, it it is interesting too how how much things changed for him with his marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like it really brought out a softer, happier, more optimistic side of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that uh, he I don't know he had the this softening. Like I loved Gene Siskel's uh, wife talking about you know that he was the one who who would take a cab from her when she's eight months pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's, and it's really, really interesting. And then she just was so strong. I mean, it is hard to be a caregiver and I really admired her. Uh, and this, I admired her when it was happening, but this was even more so uh, mm. watching this. It was just how strong she was. And I really appreciate that. And uh, so let's see here. What else? Um, then it talks a little bit about, it goes into Gene Siskel. And we learned that basically like Gene was his professional enemy, which is if you had watched the show, that was obvious. I mean, there were times when they would get so frustrated and angry with each other and about, you know, about these opinions. And uh, the, it starts out, you know, they're very stiff and very thing, but then they get sort of more, Interesting. One of the things that really, this wouldn't surprise you since you didn't know, but one of the things that really surprised me was to learn that Gene Siskel was this like guy hanging out with Hugh Hefner. I would <laughs> never have guessed that because on the show, he was sort of more, I would say a little bit more 
the academic, even though Roger certainly was, uh, he was, I would have, I would have said that, uh, that I think it says in the documentary that, that Roger was more of the populist. And I would agree with that. Uh -huh. uh, the, that, and that, uh, Gene Siskel was more of the erudite kind of a, a type. And, uh, so I don't know. That was really surprising to me. I never would have guessed that he was the party man. I liked, you know, said their differences made them a sitcom of two guys who lived in a movie theater. So, mm -hmm. and if you, if you really should, I wish that that someday they would actually release all the seasons or whatever. On it's probably just be a copyright nightmare. But oh, I would love to have that. And but if you ever, there's a bunch of the clips on YouTube and stuff, and you should watch them because they are just the best. A little bit about how the show got some criticism because of this thumbs up thumbs down and how the the sort of the commercialism of criticism mm -hmm. and that this had been sort of bad they they have i think his name is roger corliss i think on there who'd written this piece against against the show uh but i i certainly didn't feel that way ever as a kid watching the show that mm -hmm. it was one that i like I said, I learned about so many movies through him, and uh, I I thought that I don't know that was just it was really interesting, and uh, then it goes into a little bit about uh, the the influence that he had with different filmmakers uh, like uh, Werner Herzog's on there, Errol Morris is on there, uh, Martin Scorsese is on there, and uh, what. Uh, Roger and Gene said about one of his films uh, the really got him out of a dark place and got him to I thought that was pretty moving uh, that he said and and Werner Herzog says uh, he reinforces my courage and that was that was really uh, a neat thing and uh, the you had this idea that Roger was really interested in these filmmakers and he's in he's in the in these people but he was also still going to be tough on them he was not gonna uh write you know fluff pieces like he was tough on that scorsese film i forget which one but uh and and he's kind of like oh okay he's not gonna give me a pass so that was was really interesting and think about sort of criticism today you know the art of criticism do you have any thoughts Goo? yeah <laughs> a lot but i'll keep it short no please um because so first off when i was a kid not knowing anything about him not knowing he had a show like i, I literally did not know he had a show until i watched this documentary <laughs> um i didn't even know this is where you're gonna be like what i didn't even know that he wrote reviews until like maybe a year or so ago. I think it might have even been watching your channel. You like referenced a review that he had done. And I was like, oh, and then I went and read it. And I was like, oh, he does these. They're like essays. Oh, I had so no good. idea. I <laughs> thought that he just like blurbed stuff, you know, where you'd be like a fantastic, riveting, gritty ride, you know, and two thumbs up. And I remember being a kid and all I'd ever hear was two thumbs up on all of these movies. And they kind of, talked about that phase in time where they were giving like everything two thumbs up and that was this like big thing and they were so well known. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that phrase all the time, like Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up. And I remember thinking as a kid that 
this was a scam and that these two guys just got really popular and they gave everything two thumbs up so that people would know who they are, value their two thumbs up, and then they give more things two thumbs up. I thought that like that was how they did their job and that they were just doing it for everything. And so um, I can see how maybe for like a younger critic that was trying to break in during that time where the two thumbs up was just like on everything. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a slogan. And, and I'm sure it wasn't actually on everything. I'm positive it wasn't, <laughs> but it seemed like it was. Yeah. And so when they mentioned that somebody kind of pointed this out, I was like, oh, that's really amazing. Cause I remember that like point in time, commercialization of criticism on YouTube happened with BookTube, which is mm. this corner of YouTube where people would talk about books. Um, And I got into BookTube just like watching the videos around 2009. And the Mm -hmm. people um, who, I guess, kind of started it, they never said, we are creating BookTube. This is a thing. They were just people who wanted to talk about books and didn't have anybody to talk about them with. Maybe they had just started college um, or they just didn't have any friends or family that had similar tastes. And so it was very genuine and it was very thoughtful. The videos were often really long where they would just sit and talk about this book. And the thing was, was the more popular they got, um, then they became a marketing tool. And I don't think any of this is bad. Like none of this is unethical in my opinion. It's just what happens. And so then book publishers and authors were sending these people their books in order to get reviews because they had such large followings. And then more and more and more money gets involved because of the pull that these people have, you know, like some of these booktubers, if they were really excited about a book, that author might end up with like a movie deal and you could literally watch like where it happened um, and who was influencing that. Um, And so even now there's so much money in BookTube that a lot of people have become really disenchanted with it as a whole. So much of what this process was that they were talking about in this documentary here, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where people become critical of the criticism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, yeah, I think it's just kind of the natural way of things. I think well, it's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, and well, and what's interesting is that uh, now we have the equivalent, the modern equivalent to thumbs up and thumbs down is, of course, the rotten and fresh tomato uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. But, and I just did a defense of Rotten Tomatoes over on my blog. Uh, you should check that out. I'll put a link in the description. But uh, the, the interesting thing I think about Rotten Tomatoes is that it's actually an amalgam of many critics. And so mm-hmm. it's a, it's an, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an aggregator. And so it's, it's different. It's not just two people like you had with Siskel and Ebert, but the nice thing about Siskel and Ebert is that if you watched the show and if you read their work, you could, uh, you could understand what the thumbs up meant and what mm-hmm. the thumbs down meant mm-hmm. uh, that because you got to know that, Oh, this is their taste. This is the kind of thing that, that Jean likes. This is the kind of thing that Roger likes. And, uh, and so it was sometimes they surprise you, of course, but uh, that's, I think still, you can still have now uh, with critics like I, it, but it takes a little bit more work because there are so many and yeah. uh, it's just not, it's not just these two people that you could get to know and you could kind of rely on, oh, I agree with Gene more of the time. I agree with Roger more of the time. And uh, so, I don't know, it's an interesting kind of a thing. Like, we've, mm-hmm. we've 
expanded the number of voices that we have out there. Um, but in some ways that is helpful in some ways that's less helpful he, his influence on all these different filmmakers and all these different mm -hmm. uh someone like Errol morris who's this documentary documentarian who makes these crazy wonderful movies uh, his movie gates of heaven about these these pet cemeteries is mm -hmm. so good and nobody would have seen that movie without uh roger and gene Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with Hoop Dreams. I mean, nobody would have seen that movie. And the director of Hoop Dreams made this movie, by the way, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I mean, he, they championed that movie so much. It was both of their favorite movies that year. They, they, they got so many people to see it, including myself. So, uh, anyway, it's, it, it was really cool. When he would give feedback scores, he says, that was a way of condemning and helping at the same time. Mm -hmm. when he would give that i think that that is true because he didn't just uh he didn't just say oh i hated it uh blah, right. blah blah he would really explain it and he would really and some of the things that frustrates me now about doing criticism is because everyone is so i call it spoiler phobia mm -hmm. where they they any detail is considered mm -hmm. by certain people as a spoiler and mm -hmm. so it's really hard to talk about things and i feel like every review ends up be feeling the same because yeah. there's so many things you can't talk about yes and that, and it, whereas like, I feel like then they were able to give sort of more nuanced answers to things because people weren't as spoiler sensitive. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I also liked, uh, I think this was Gene Siskel, says they didn't care what anyone else, uh, uh, they didn't care what anyone else thought about anything as long as they could persuade the other, uh -huh. not just about movie reviews, about anything in life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that that is... Uh, helpful in a way when you have that person who is really different from you in your life and that you can that kind of challenges you and says like nope uh think about this a little bit more why are you doing this and you can kind of uh really so you're not just sort of going on automatic i guess it makes yeah, you think about things i i don't know i so i i was surprised at how much i related to the character you know, of Roger Ebert. Um, because I mean, I used to be obsessed with my own opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt like they were so brilliant. I had a responsibility to not only share them with people, but to try and, you know, coerce them over to my side, uh, and my way of thinking. Um, and it just felt so important to me. And I would write because I felt like I had to get these things out. Like I was going to make the world a better place by sharing my opinions. Mm -hmm. And just in the last few years, um, I mean, I got a little bit more tactful, like as I got older. Um, but just in the last few years, I have felt so personally bombarded with opinions, opinions. Yeah. Just, uh, just opinions in general. Like I actually have a hard time even walking into a Barnes and Noble because I'll feel emotionally overwhelmed by the amount of people who want to share their opinions. And I, it's like, I can't, I can't read it all. And so I'll feel overwhelmed by that. And like, mm. I'll get on, um, Twitter or Facebook. And the thing is, is my sister and I, we were just having this conversation yesterday. We'll do the same thing where we'll read someone's opinion and we, um, are very powerful empathizers. And so we'll immediately try on that idea. Mm. But the thing is, is if I spend too much time on Twitter, it's like I'm trying on every single idea. I'm looking for a way to yeah. empathize with every single idea. And whether the ideas are, you know, good or bad or interesting or not, 
I'm exhausted by the end. And just from this inundation on social media, I have found this disenchantment with my own opinions. Interesting. um, Which has everything to do with why I'm always saying I want to talk about books and movies on my channel, but then I just don't because Mm -hmm. I just don't see the value in it anymore. And so with um, Roger Ebert, I see this man who lives in a time before this massive inundation where like he can share an opinion and it is a special thing, whether he hated the movie or not, like it's valued and there's, it's not Rotten Tomatoes where it's, you know, an amalgamation of everybody's opinions altogether. It's just his. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, I think it would kind of be like a little bubble for him where he can live. And it's like, everything you have to say is a golden treasure, you know, <laughs> to humanity. Like you're gracing us with your opinion. Um, and I guess, I guess how I, I, that's totally valid. I guess the way I looked at it is that when I, my parents, uh, were very good about, kind of challenging us on our opinions on things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we would, they, they, they really discouraged mindless consumption, my parents. And mm-hmm. so we would watch something and my parents would say, well, what did you think about that? Why did you like it? What are the reasons that it worked for you or didn't work for you? Let's talk about it. You know, kind of, and we would have these very animated discussions about things. Mm-hmm. And cause my brother and I are, are worlds apart on almost everything. And uh, literally, like we are so different, it's hard to believe that we're we had the same upbringing. Uh, and I I don't know. I feel like that benefited me a lot in my life mm-hmm. to be able to not just sort of consume mindlessly, to really think about things and think about what I thought about them, and and think about and having that kind of uh, I guess uh, debate in my life, I guess, uh, made me, uh, I think a better person. And that's sort of what I took from Roger and Jean. Yeah. I think it all depends on like where your starting point is and where your balance is going to lie. Because for me, it was like, I argued everything, Mm. literally everything. Like if anybody ever said anything that I didn't just, that I didn't agree with, I would immediately let them know. And, um, I actually, like the first time I ever thought of not doing that. I was 21 years old and off my mission. Like it was the Mm -hmm. first time that I thought, Christine, maybe your opinion doesn't matter. And it was like, I was having dinner with this family and the mom says that she thinks Harry Potter is like devil worship. Mm -hmm. And I just remember wanting to be like, I disagree. Like, let me tell you all the reasons you're wrong. I wrote an essay in college on like the banning of Harry Potter. I have so much to say. And then I just realized like, what am I really going to accomplish here? And then I just let it go. It was this amazing moment in my life. And so for me, like, (laughs) I was never one to just, um, you know, just like go with other people's opinions. Like I would want to hear them and I'd I'd want to empathize with them. But then I had this need to constantly be heard as well. Um, And I think even just interacting with you and talking about some movies and you changing my mind about some movies has also helped me just kind of take a back seat to to what I already think and how sold I am on it. Um, And 
I well, me as well. I, I mean, there's been many times when, like, I did a a, a podcast with my friend on Maleficent, and I hate Maleficent, mm-hmm. and it's not like I love it now, but I did understand why it worked for her, and it was an interesting experience for me. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of too. I, I can. I definitely can see what you're saying, and I agree. Uh, but I think that that it still can be a helpful sort of tool instead of just mindless consumption uh, yeah. that is that we see so often. And the idea of thinking, thinking about things and talking, having somebody in your life who is interested in things and interested in sort of not interested in just mindless consumption. I can think of it another way. Uh, and, you know, they just had happened to have a national audience watching them have these discussions. <laughs> yeah, those conversations all the time on the phone with people mm-hmm. whose opinions I value. Like that's kind yeah. of what I do the most. And that's why I think that making these videos with you is so comfortable for me because it feels like that, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm just talking to someone whose opinions I value, who I think has an interesting perspective. And so, you know, that's where I want to share things. But I mean, for yeah, instance, me like I, it took me forever to put any sort of response up to the force awakens on my channel because yeah. so many people loved it. And I was kind of mixed about it. And I just didn't even, I just wanted to hear people talking about how much they loved it. I didn't want to engage even in what I didn't like about it. I I was, I was like, I I don't even have anything to say. And like, I still haven't done a video about um, Rogue One because I loved it so much. Mm. It's like, I don't even want to debate it. I don't even want to talk to people about it because like, I just want to like it. I just want to go do my own thing and like it. And so for me, like that's me finding my balance and coming back from this other side of the extreme. But I absolutely agree that, um, you know, taking apart and analyzing why we like what we do and and what the actual artistic merit of some of these things are like, that's, I think really, really useful. Um, when it's, and I forget when sometimes because way. that is just the way I was raised, like uh-huh. with everything. And, uh, and I forget that other people aren't like that. Like when I was in college, I remember we went to see Chuck a lot and I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it, particularly because I felt like the messaging was very anti-religious in it. And I, so we're, we're, uh, we're driving home. And I remember my, uh, my friends were like, it was so romantic. It was so blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I was like, what they make the the priest to out to be just this idiot and you know uh, there's things that are saying about sin and blah 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 and i'm i'm saying all these things i can't i haven't seen it since then so i can't remember all my sort of objections but that's how i felt at the time and uh and i was saying all these things and, and they were like oh <laughs> 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 buzzkill kind of a thing but uh, uh-huh. that's just the way i was raised uh so uh it, it's an interesting experience but anyway okay so then uh, Gene Siskel, and they have this show, and you, know, you see this whole thing about his show. Uh, they, they were one of the first shows to really monopolize on national syndication. Uh, that, that was an idea that, uh, that uh, he, he actually ended up becoming friends with Oprah because they're both in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was one that, that actually inspired Oprah to go on syndication. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. interesting and so there's some stuff there and then uh the so gene siskel ends up getting brain cancer and this was interesting i thought because uh gene didn't tell anybody because he he didn't even tell his kids because he just wanted to have that last year of his life be happy 
and he didn't tell Roger and Roger was really devastated by that. It really wounded him because they were friends, even though they were foes in a way. Uh, and, and Roger kind of decided that he would never do that if the same thing happened to him, which yeah. I thought was just to see their different approaches to death and privacy, I guess, in a way, uh, and friendship. Was- it, it reminded me of something that I hope isn't like an offensive comparison because it's so it's a fraction, uh, less than a fraction of the actual situation. But it reminded me so much of um, when I went on my mission and I, when I first came out, we had a lot of really trunky missionaries, trunky mm-hmm. meaning, of course, you know what it means, but yeah. for anybody else <laughs> listening to this, trunky means that you're sitting on your trunk waiting to go home and you're obsessed with going home and you're counting down the days. Um, and so when I first came out, some of the missionaries that were in leadership positions were saying, you know, don't tell anyone how long you've been out. If people ask, say either just under a year or just over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, because you don't want to focus this whole time on going home and you don't want to spend your last few months on your mission saying goodbye to people. And you know, right. not teaching lessons. And so I just had that in my mind because that was how I was trained as a missionary. And so my last transfer of my mission, I was still saying just over a year when people asked me how long I'd been out. And I was even training a new missionary my very last uh, month or so on my mission. And she didn't know that I was going home. <laughs> And until two wow, weeks you're before, good. yeah, you're really good. until two weeks before. And so like at the, uh, you know, at one of the final conferences, when everyone goes up to, who's going to be going home, goes up to give their final testimony. Like I went up and a bunch of missionaries were like, what? Like sister Kohler is going home. Like a bunch of people didn't know. Um, and so some people, some missionaries thought that, that was great, but my companion was really upset that she thought she had had more time with me and it turned out she didn't. And then I did not tell any of my investigators I was going home. And so I would be teaching them final lessons and they didn't know that they were not going to see me again. And so I got home and I started getting calls from investigators, you know, who were like so hurt that they hadn't been able to say goodbye. And this whole time I thought I had been doing this thing where like I was being a good missionary and I had hurt them. And so it just reminded me so much because like people compare going home from your mission to dying all the time when you're on your mission, you know? And so I was like, it's just like that. Like, here's this one person who's like, I want to go out strong. I want to be, you know, living my life the way I would live it if I was going to still be alive and, you know, years to come. And, um, and then someone is hurt by that. And so then they do the opposite and surprise, surprise, the missionary that I trained told people where she was in her mission all the time mm-hmm. because she didn't want to do the same thing that I did to her. Um, we're still friends. We just talked to the phone yesterday, but um, so it just reminded me so much of that. I feel like you can't do it right. You, you really can't like it's going to, your death is going to hurt people any way you go about it, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's like, just do it on your own terms. If yeah. You uh, either way is, is, uh, is going to be hard cause it's, it sucks. But, uh, uh, it, it's really kind of uh, touching in a way to see to see that it did hurt him that much in a way yeah. that they really oh. were friends. And then we get sort of the end of his life, and uh, and that was just really moving. 
and uh, the you know you see she see Chaz his wife you know saying I never I never got so tired I wanted to give up I thought that was really beautiful and moving and the, the experience of a caregiver uh, is is uh, is something really profound and really hard uh, but she was great and uh, so yeah I guess so what are your sort of final thoughts about about the film? Um, just that I think anybody who's interested in movies would enjoy this yeah. film. I think they should watch it. Um, it was certainly illuminating. I am so oh, happy. Sweetheart. Just a second. I am so happy that we watched this Daddy, before all of his other movies thing. because this is his list. Yeah. And it puts so much in context for me. I feel like this is really going to inform the way that I look. Um, mm. at this series of movies before we watch them. And so it made me more excited. Um, it made me want to actually read Life Itself um, because mm -hmm. it sounded like there was a lot in the documentary that they weren't able to cover. This is a foot, mm -hmm. by the way. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I actually haven't read the book, but I want to as well. And, yeah. uh, and just an amazing, remarkable life. A human being uh, that had just this insane life and... Uh, and uh, I, I, so I love it, and I am excited to, to talk about these 33 films. It's going to be really fun. And uh, we're going to start next week uh, with Apollo 13. So that will be really good. And uh, so we'll look forward to that. Just a minute. So um, where, can people, where can people find you? So people can find me um, at christinetyler.com. On YouTube, I'm youtube.com slash C Tyler Vision. That's the letter C. Um, we'll probably put links in the description yeah. as well and stuff like that. So, yeah. And then on, um, I'm doing more on my Instagram oh, lately. Yeah. So, Instagram, I'm C Tyler Insta for my family and uh, general stuff. And then I'm C Tyler Books. Okay. Books to go with that. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I'll put that all down there. And uh, thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited. <laughs> it'll be fun. And uh, so yeah, if you want to get the, I'll put a link down if you want to check out the Kindle, get the Kindle with the 33 uh, books uh, on there, because we'll be talking about his reviews as well. So there you go. Well, thanks again. And uh, we will talk next week. All right. See you then.